But for us this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 131. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you you can use this morning. We typically take a break from our sermon series as we go through, um, as we've been going through Philippians for the, for the uh, sort of a preparation for the Lord's table. We've been working our way through the Psalms. And this is a Psalm of Ascent. And so uh, if you see uh, around in the 20s and 30s of your Psalter, um, these are called Songs of Ascent. These were Psalms that uh, were historically used uh, on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem as they would, as they would head up to Jerusalem and go up uh, the mountain to worship the Lord. And so this is a short psalm, but it's a really good one. I love this one. So would you please stand as we hear God's word? This is God's word. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed, quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Father, would you bless us now as we, as we read your word, as we, as we ponder these truths in this psalm. Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak? Would you move in us and transform us and further renew our minds and conform us to Christ, our Savior? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the great preacher, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once said about this psalm, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest psalms to learn. Shortest psalm to read, but longest to learn. And why is it so difficult for us to learn how to calm and quiet our souls, to rest, to be at peace, to be still. Why is that so hard? I remember as a child, five, six, seven, eight years old, being mystified at why adults take naps. Never, never understood it. But I will say now in my 30s, with four kids, I get it. I love naps. And if you were to come by our house later today, around 2 or 3 o'clock, I I might be napping on the couch, if the the children allow me to. And I I have this picture in my mind of being in the living room with my dad and trying to nap with him, seeing him nap, but trying to do it with him. And I could see him kind of squint at me and could tell I was just being restless. I was rolling around. I was, I was just unsure how he was doing this, right? I was active. I was energetic. I was, you know, six years old. But what I did love about that, I didn't, I didn't know how to nap but I, and rest myself, but I loved being with him and trying to imitate what he was doing and resting 
And it's a learned thing. You, you learn that through life, and you need, you need to rest more as you get older. But it reminded me that we must learn contentment with the Lord by being weaned from the world around us. We, we have to learn contentment with the Lord by being weaned from the world. You know, as I was a child, I didn't, I didn't know how to rest or nap like my dad, but I loved being with him. And that gave me contentment and peace. That's what this psalm is about. It's about contentment. It's about being satisfied with the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson says, Christian contentment, this is, this is the secret, he says, to Christian contentment. Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal. That is what Christian, that's where Christian contentment comes from. To, be, to know you belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal. So this morning, what I want us to get and understand from this, this short psalm is that the path to joy, the path to joy and satisfaction and contentment is found resting in the presence of our covenant-keeping God. I say covenant-keeping because the word Lord is mentioned in verse 1 and verse 3, and that's the covenant name Yahweh. Right? That's the name of God who he revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. He is the Lord. He is our covenant-keeping God. The path to joy and satisfaction and contentment is to belong, to be in the presence of our covenant-keeping God. And we're going to see that we we are satisfied in in three distinct ways, or, or by three means. The first is our limits, that we're satisfied with our limits, that we're limited human beings. Number two, that we're satisfied with our Father, being in His presence. And then thirdly, that we're satisfied with our hope. Three verses, three points this morning. First, let's look at this idea of being satisfied with our limits. Begin at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. First, I want to look at is this connection between eyes and heart. That first phrase, that parallelism. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Isn't it true that sometimes our eyes, the gaze of our eyes gets us into trouble? What we look at can cause us trouble. There are some examples in the Old Testament of when someone looked at something, it brought them trouble. The first uh, instance, I'm sure many of you have heard, is Genesis 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by fire by the Lord, and, and Lot and his wife are fleeing from the destruction, and they're commanded not to look back at the destruction, at the fire, at the judgment. And we know Lot's wife looked back, and we know what happened to her. She turned into a pillar of salt. Why is that? What is the connection between eyes and heart? Well, let me show you another example and unpack it a little bit further. We, last year we went through a, a sermon series in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we read of Israel getting the ark back. They lost it to the Philistines, the ark of the covenant. 
And then the Philistines didn't want it anymore because God kept cursing them and giving them tumors and plagues and their statues kept falling over and breaking. And so they're like, okay, we're getting rid of the ark. The ark comes into Israel and some of the men of Israel, this town called Beth Shemesh, it says God struck some of these Israelites with a plague and killed them because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. The Hebrew there could also read, they looked into the ark. They lifted it up, maybe, perhaps, and looked in. Well, you certainly weren't supposed to touch the ark. It's holy. And the Lord struck 70 of those men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with the great blow. There's something about our eyes. When, when the Lord commands us not to look at something and we do it, there's pride, there's arrogance there, isn't it? It's When Lot's wife is, is looking back at the destruction, she's sort of, Almost like gloating, right? A bragging uh, uh, of an arrogance sort of coming upon her heart that, that she is better than them. You see, God is very concerned about what we look at. He's very concerned about the gaze of our eyes. There's a connection between lust and our eyes. It's why Jesus says to, to the men there, when you look with lustful intent at a woman, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart, right? The eyes and the heart are connected. And here in the psalm, he's saying, my heart is not lifted up in arrogance, right? And my eyes are not raised too high. He's talking about in a sinful way, in an arrogant way. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So the first part of this psalm, in the first verse, he's, he's saying, I will limit myself. I will limit what I look at. I will limit what my heart desires. And I'll limit myself. That's really hard to do in our day and age, isn't it? Limiting yourself. We live in a world of self-promotion. We live in a world of, I'll call it the age of the self age of the self, where, especially in the social media world, it's all about what image am I projecting to the world? Right? What am I trying to, how am I trying to enhance my image so that others will like me more? We live in the world of self-help. We live in the world of self-care. And we live in the age of self. If, that, if that's true, so if we're living in this age of self, you think that would be a good thing. Right? We're caring for ourselves. But why is depression at all-time highs in the age of self? Why are we dis- more dissatisfied with ourselves the more we serve ourselves? Well, the great church, early church father Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. Isn't that true? We find, try to find our rest, our satisfaction in anything other than the Lord. We'll continue to be restless, trying to fill our hearts with whatever we think will help us. This Christian theologian, Miroslav Volf, says, The self will lose itself if it simply lives for itself. It will seek only its own benefits. And here's the irony of the self doing that, seeking its own benefits. He says, the more it seeks its own benefits, the more unsatisfied it will become. 
The more you live for yourself, the more unsatisfied yourself will become. It will not work. That is why we're unsatisfied. That's why depression is at all-time highs. To give an example of what we're called to do as Christians, we're called to live above reproach. I was listening to a couple of pastors on a podcast talking about this idea. We're called to live, pastors are called to live above reproach, meaning that we are not to put ourselves in situations where we can be accused of sin. Right? We're to live above reproach. We're to live with accountability in our lives. And what's underneath that is that we must be skeptical of our own hearts. We must be skeptical of our own hearts. You know, accountability, I don't know if you've ever had accountability in your walk as a Christian. Someone to help you, someone to pray with, someone to share, confess your sins to. It's good to have, we need that. Accountability requires humility, doesn't it? It requires you to go low to be above reproach. To be above reproach is to be low, going low in humility, knowing that we could fall into sinful traps at any moment without God's grace. Right? Knowing that we're prone to wandering is vital for the Christian. So there's this humility we see in verse 1. Oh Lord, my, my heart's not lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. There's sort of this blissful ignorance that we're, we're to have. I think about children. Children are blissfully ignorant about, about a lot of things in the world. And that's, that's okay. That's a good thing for children to be ignorant about some of the worst things of our world. Right? We don't, they don't need to be exposed to it. And children know their own limitations. They know their own limitations. There's this beautiful scene in Luke 18 where children are being brought to Jesus, and the disciples don't like that. The disciples are like, look, Jesus is this great teacher. He doesn't need to be bothered by little children. Right? They're just going to get snot on his clothes, and, and they're going to just want him to sing a song or something. That's not important. But Jesus called them out. He said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's he's rebuking all the adults in the room and saying, you must be like a child if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. You must know your limits. You must know your dependence. You know, we have our, our fourth child is just learning to walk. And she will, you know, she'll walk short distances across the living room. Or, um, and she'll walk down the hallway, and we're just like, whoa, she's walking all of a sudden. But she still likes to crawl. That's kind of even faster for her. Walking still a little bit uneasy, like her hips are kind of swaying. But you know what she wants even more than to crawl? She wants to be picked up. Still, even now, like she'll come up to me and put her arms up in the air, say, Daddy, pick me up. And you know what? That's good. You know, she's still small. It's, it's normal and good for her to know her limits and to put her trust and dependence in her parents. And so we are called to do the same thing, to come to God trusting him, not demanding answers to every question we've ever had. And we have lots of questions. I have lots of questions for God that I can't wait to ask in heaven. There's this uh, verse I like to remind myself of, Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
It says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. See what he's doing there? He's dividing between what is hidden and what is revealed. What is hidden is God's, we call it God's hidden will, right? It's those things we just don't know why. We don't know why our life has gone about the way it has, the struggles, the sufferings we have. But he has revealed things. He has revealed his word to us. You know, if you're young today, if you're in your late teens, early 20s, you're thinking about your life and career, aren't you? You're thinking like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, What should I do? What's God's will for my life? And those are great questions. You should pray about that, be discerning. But the first answer to that question, what's God's will for my life, is this, to live according to his word, right? To live within his revealed will, the things he's declared and shown you. That's where you have to start. But I know this is a this question of trusting God when you don't see what he's doing or you can't understand what he's doing. I know for some of you right now that is that's a very important question because you're going through suffering. You're going through pain, you're going through grief right now or you have in this past year. And you want to say, God, what are you doing? Why? Why is why is this happening? Why am I going through cancer? Why did I lose my spouse? Why did I lose my stepbrother last year? Spurgeon has a great quote. He says, God is too good. When we ask those questions, we need to remind ourselves of these truths. God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trace his heart. When we cannot trace God's hand and, and seeing what he's doing or why he's doing, we must remember his heart, that he's good and that he cares for his children. In this psalm, it's connected really to these other psalms of ascent. And if you just go back a few verses to Psalm 130, it's also a, psalm, a song of ascent. And it's a reminder that we're forgiven. It's a reminder that our iniquities have been forgiven. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We've got to remember that. That we're forgiven sinners. If you trust in Jesus today, you have been completely forgiven. Everything you've ever done and thought and said. And you've also, more than that, been given Jesus' righteousness. His perfect life has been credited to you. And so when we think about that, forgiven sinners can't be smug or haughty or proud. There's a certain humble contentment to a forgiven sinner. I'll remind you what Sinclair Ferguson said. Christian contentment is the direct fruit having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and be at his disposal. Why? Because he forgives you. He loves you. And therefore, we're satisfied with our limits. The second point this morning is that we're satisfied with our Father. Let's look at verse 2 together. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Paul is, or, uh, 
David is using this, this metaphor of, of, of sitting with his mother, being content and happy. It's interesting, though, you might be thinking, Blake, isn't David using feminine attributes or a feminine analogy for God to describe God? Well, yeah, he is. And why, how can he do that? Why, why does he do that? Well, that's because both men and women are made in the image of God and reflect his goodness and care in various different ways. And so we'll see that sometimes as you read through Scripture. Both fathers and mothers teach their children about what God is like. I was just reading in my, my quiet time a few days ago, through reading through the Bible plan, Deuteronomy chapter 1, God describes how he cared for his people in the wilderness. And he described himself as a father carrying a son. He said, you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. All the way that you went until you came to this place. And then an example in Matthew 23, Jesus describes himself metaphorically as this mother hen. He says, O Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. So so David is going to use this imagery of being this child like with his mother, calm and content, as an example of how he is before the Lord. And so he says he's calm, he's quieted. I have calmed and quieted my soul. That word for um, calmed it can also be read as stilled or smoothed. It's like when you're making your bed at home and you see the wrinkles in it and you want to smooth out the sheets and make them nice and flat. You smooth it. And you make it still. He said he's done that to his soul. He's, he's calmed himself. He's quieted himself. You know, it reminds me that David is saying he's doing this to himself. And contentment is learned, isn't it? It's not automatic. Right? How many of you woke up this morning and you were just very content? You were just very unworried, unanxious about anything. And it just happened naturally. I mean, occasionally you'll get that gift, right? But often we have to find contentment. We have to search for it. We have to work at it. We have to go to God's word for it. We have to teach ourselves to be content because our heart always wants more. It's like this. We have to force naps on our kids sometimes. We know that they're tired. We know that they're struggling, especially our three-year-old. We have to say, nope, you're not getting out of bed. We're shutting the blinds, putting on your white noise. Don't you get it? I don't want to hear footsteps up above us, right? Stay in your bed. Well, you know what? We have to be forced to rest too. And God commands us to rest, doesn't he? He commands us to rest on Sunday, today. There's a reason why Sabbath rest is not good advice or good counsel. It's a command. Why? Because we wouldn't do it on our own. We wouldn't rest. We have to be commanded to rest. He commands it for our good. In Mark 2, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for you and me. It was made for man. It was a gift to us. I think growing up, I didn't like people talking about the Sabbath, that that we were forced to sort of keep the Sabbath. I saw it as just another rule that God was just tacking on more rules and, you know, I want to do what I want to do on Sunday. Um, I don't want God to tell me what to do. Um, But the more I saw it as a gift to be protected, it's something I started to enjoy. 
It's, it's something God gives me as a gift. And so I want to protect it. I want to enjoy it. Gavin Ortland, a pastor, says, do you, often, do you too often feel hurried and distracted? You know, we live in an age of hurry. You know, often I'll ask people, how are they doing? How are you doing? You know, eight times out of ten, it's, I'm busy. I'm busy. We all are busy. We're hurried. We feel distracted. And Gavin Ortland says, could it be that our frequent neglect of Sabbath rest reflects a gap in our trust in the gospel? That if we are neglecting the Sabbath rest that he's given to us as a gift, perhaps even we're not trusting in the gospel the way we should. You know, when the the Sabbath commandment is given to us in Exodus 20 and and in Deuteronomy 5, it's interesting, there's two different reasons for why God gives us the Sabbath. And in Exodus 20, the reason is you should rest because God created all things and he rested on the seventh day. So you're to rest like he rests. The point being, we're designed to rest. We're creational creatures. We were made in his image. We should rest because God rests. It's it's within us. It's it's our design. And then in Deuteronomy 5, he tells them to, I read this earlier in the service, he says to rest because, now he doesn't go to the creation, he says, because you were a slave. And I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, rest on the Sabbath. Right? He's not giving the creational idea. He's saying rest because salvation has been achieved for you. There's no more work to be done. Your work is finished. Jesus did the work for you. Sunday is a day of celebration, of rest from our works, from our spiritual works and our physical works. Another pastor says, most people are afraid to rest. We're afraid to rest because we don't trust God and instead trust ourselves to hold, to hold the world together. He says, Sabbath is one big way to say, God, I trust you. While I rest, I trust that you are at work. That's what you can say with your Sabbath rest today. I trust you, God. You're the one at work, not me. He says, I found that I do better work because of keeping the Sabbath. That we'll act, that's true. If you truly find rest on the Lord's day, you will have a better work week, I guarantee it, because you'll have a rest to look forward to. He says, after the Sabbath, I've often discovered that the problems that were giving me so much stress solved themselves while I was busy playing with my three sons, watching a movie, or enjoying laughter with friends. See what he's saying? So much of what we worry about will get resolved on its own. Because God is at work, and we don't have to be. Tim Keller says, anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even a self-imposed one. He says, your own heart, or our materialistic culture, or an exploitive organization, or all the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore, Tim Keller says, Sabbath is, Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. It means you're not a slave. Not to your culture's expectations, not to your family's hopes, not even to your own insecurities. It's important that you learn to speak this truth to yourself with a note of triumph. 
when you rest on Sunday, be triumphant about it. He says, otherwise you'll feel guilty for taking time off or you'll be unable to truly unplug. That is so prevalent in our culture today. To take vacation time, you feel guilty, don't you? I got to get back to work or you got to be checking your email. You can't fully unplug. We have to take our rest because God commands it. And here we get to this idea of a weaned child. David describes himself as one who's calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child. Now, what is a weaned child? A weaned child is one who's uh, not reliant upon his mother's milk for provision anymore, for, for sustenance. And so what, what David is getting at is, is no matter the age of the child, what the point is that the child goes to his mom not for provision, but for companionship. The, the child goes to his mom not for milk, but for a hug, to sit in his mom's presence, to belong to his mother. That's the point. That's what David is saying we need to be like with God, that we want to belong to him, body and soul. We actually confess that truth from the Heidelberg Catechism. Very often here at at our church service, what is your only comfort in life and in death? We answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. He belongs. We belong to the Lord. Some of you might be pushing back and say, well, what about the scriptures that talk about, well, you need to not be a child anymore. You need to be mature in your faith. You need to not just have the milk of the word. You need to have meat. How does it square with moving from childhood to maturity in our faith? See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I fought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up foolish and childish ways. And in Hebrews 5, it says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Well, it's a different idea It's basically the idea that we should mature in our faith. We'll mature in our faith the more we become dependent upon the Lord, and we will grow mature. We'll we'll know how to discern right from wrong. We'll have wisdom. That's what Paul is saying in those verses. But it comes from a rhythm of rest and dependency upon the Lord. So let me ask you this morning, do you have regularly scheduled times of rest? True rest. Do you you allow yourself to slow down and stop and cease from your work, from your activities? The women's conference was here, uh, was that two Saturdays ago? Um, And one report I heard from the women's conference was, um, you know, there were were at one point a lot of tears. I sat in during the testimony part, and there were a lot of tears just because it was such a good testimony Kat gave of God's grace in her heart. But it was also mentioned to me that there was another mom emotional during that time. And she was thinking, she wasn't, we weren't quite sure why she was emotional, but one thought was, you know, this is a mom who works you know, 60 plus hours, husband works 60 plus hours a week, and this is a 
one time, right? Maybe for in months that she's had to just sit and listen to God's word being taught to her and being served and not have all to be working all the time, either for her kids or for her job. That she actually had this time to be silent. That's why providing childcare is so important for parents. That they get time to just listen and to be fed spiritually. You know, every service, worship service, we have a silent time of confession of sin. And that's important. And that's intentional. Because we live in a world where silence is getting less and less in our lives. It's hard to find times of silence, isn't it? And sometimes it's our own doing, right? We let the world intrude upon ourselves. We let this intrude on our lives, don't we? Picking it up all the time. I do it. So where are you finding rest? You know, some people have asked me as a pastor, like, how do you find Sabbath rest? Because this is your day of work. Right? This is the day you work. Well, I was always encouraged in seminary to see Sunday for a pastor as a day of rest, even though you're serving and you're working. And you know, many of you serve on Sunday that I work along, alongside. Right? You, you work, you serve. And so for me, I see Sunday and Monday as my Sabbath. So I, Monday is my day off. And so really, that's an extension of the Sabbath for me, that I get to truly rest and, and be off. But are you able to truly rest? Are, do you rest? What do you need to rest from, right? A good way to figure that out is what do you do all throughout the week that you need to stop doing on Sunday? Is it news? Do you need to rest from news? Is it looking at your finances and investments? Do you need to take a break from that on Sunday? How about um, just anything you do that, that concerns your thoughts throughout the week You need to rest from them. You need to say no to them so that you can be close to the Lord. Last point this morning is is in verse 3. It's that we're satisfied with with our hope. He ends this psalm by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I want to hang out on just the word Israel. I don't know if you, you knew this, but Israel translates into he who strives with the Lord or wrestles with the Lord, with God. It comes from Genesis 32 when we first hear about it, when uh, Jacob had just finished wrestling with God. God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Why? Because you've striven You've wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. So I want, I want you and us to own that word Israel for yourself. As a, as a believer, um, you are a part of the covenant people of God, Israel. And you should see yourself as one who wrestles with God. Do you wrestle with God? Do you strive with Him? Do you wrestle with with his promises and his word. And we don't strive with God because we're unsatisfied with him or we don't like him. We do it because even if we're content with him, we want more of him. Remember why Jacob wrestled with God. He, he wrestled with him because to get a blessing, right? 
Do you wrestle to get more of a blessing, to, to get more of God, to receive more of a blessing from Him? So Israel, hope in the Lord. That word in Hebrew for hope can also be translated wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We just read that, and, and if you go back to Psalm, verse 7 of Psalm 130, Israel, hope in the Lord. And the verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The kind of hope that we have is a hope that waits. It waits for the Lord as we trust in Him and know that we're redeemed from all our iniquities. Verse 8 of 130, Psalm 130. Because we're redeemed in Christ and we've found rest in Christ. You know, our church is called Hope. I love the name of our church. But hope doesn't mean wishful thinking. Like, I hope this will happen tomorrow. No, we wait for what we know will come. That is what Christian hope is. It's, it's, it's not wishing for something to happen. It's knowing that something has happened, namely on the cross, and then we know what will come to pass. We know as we wait for the Lord, we hope in Him. Our hope is rooted in the truth of His promises. Because what He said will come to pass from now on and forevermore. My question before we head to the table is this, is are we satisfied? Are you satisfied with God this morning? Are you waiting on Him? Are you waiting on Him? And if we do so, He'll sustain you, He'll strengthen you, and He'll feed you while we wait, while you wait. Pray with me. Jesus, thank You for living the life we could never have lived. And thank you for dying the death we deserve and entering into our pain, unimaginable pain, to save your bride, to save your people. And thank you for changing us, slowly but surely, into your image. Now send us out, encouraged to go and tell this good news and to wrap arms around our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing this is the beginning. Our communion is the beginning of the new heavens, the new earth that we'll get to enjoy for all eternity. Encourage us with this, this truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.